Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. It's all hands on deck and it's around the clock. Wildfires continue. And so do the evacuations, including in Indigenous communities. We hear the latest from the Minister of Indigenous Services, Patty Haidu. We are coming to the end of this difficult path out of the COVID economy. Another interest rate hike. The Bank of Canada says the economy remains too strong and inflation remains too high. Economists offer their analysis on the decision. And... David Johnston is starting hearings next month, but will diaspora voices feel safe enough to participate? And will we learn anything new about foreign interference? Sherry Wong, the head of Alliance Canada Hong Kong, weighs in. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio tonight. We begin with the latest on wildfires. More than 400 are burning across Canada. More than half are out of control. 20,000 people remain out of their homes, with more evacuations expected in Quebec. And here in Ottawa, questions about creating a new federal agency to handle disaster response for fires and other emergencies. Here's how the Prime Minister answered. Unfortunately, over the past years, we've seen uh, extreme weather events uh, increase in their intensity and their impact on Canadians, as well as on their cost to families, to provinces, and to the federal budget. Um, We have, uh, over the past years, seen atmospheric rivers in BC causing devastating floods. We've seen um, Hurricane Fiona uh, hit harder than hurricanes in recent memory. Last year and this year, uh, the worst wildfire season uh, we've ever had right across the country. So we need to continue to adjust and adapt to what we're doing. The the, uh, Canadian Integrated uh, Firefighting Agency uh, was created back in 1982. Uh, It has seen many uh, improvements and and, uh, increases since. Uh, But we need to continue to make sure we are doing everything possible to both keep Canadians safe when these extreme weather events hit, but also make sure we're doing everything we can to predict, protect, uh, and act uh, ahead of more of these events coming. Well, let's go to the foyer of the House of Commons and talk more about the federal response. You see Patty Haidu, Canada's Minister of Indigenous Services. Minister Haidu, good to have you on the show. It's great to be here with you. Now, we have some overall national numbers on fires and evacuations. What can you tell us about the current situation for Indigenous communities? Yeah, so about 17 uh, Indigenous communities, First Nations communities, have been affected by wildfires this season, and 13 um, are still evacuated, about 6,300 people. Some people have gone back to community, about 1,000 or so, um, but there are still a lot of people displaced from their homes and communities. Uh, chiefs and community leaders, Indigenous firefighters, have been working incredibly hard with provinces, territories, and of course with the federal government to protect lives but also to protect critical infrastructure that, as many First Nations know, is very difficult to rebuild in some of the more remote communities. So I know that obviously different communities are in different situations right across Canada. What are your department's main priorities on the ground right now? 
So the department is there to really support First Nations leadership in the decisions that they make and oftentimes it is about, for example, evacuating, first of all, usually vulnerable people, people with uh, health conditions, people that have challenges breathing in the best of times, uh, young children or elderly people, uh, and then uh, of course supporting those evacuees uh, with a variety of different kinds of supports, including financial supports and mental health supports. The Government of Canada under our leadership transport the emergency management program actually through the experience of COVID and uh, reports by the Auditor General and just in time for fire season. So communities have full financial flexibility to, to do this work, but we're there with them if they're having cash flow challenges. We also provide a variety of different levels of expertise, both on um, protecting of community infrastructure, but largely in terms of the human resources needed uh, from a healthcare and a mental health care perspective. So I want to ask you then about that support, about that emergency management program, because uh, your government is calling this an unprecedented season for wildfires, and we can all see that from, from the images we've been seeing from across Canada. So what is the cost, uh, not just for evacuating, but for long-term rebuilding in these communities? Because there are also uh, a lot of economic livelihoods being effective. Do you have a dollar figure yet on what this is going to cost? We don't have a dollar figure, and the terrifying thing is that it is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, we don't necessarily have a precise number because communities are still in the current stage of responding to the tremendous pressure to evacuate people, to protect infrastructure, to do some of that firefighting that could protect communities. But you're absolutely right. It's going to be very expensive to rebuild. We have a reassured communities that we will be there with them as they plan that rebuilding process and as they begin that hard work. Some communities have been deeply affected, others not so much, but all communities will have an impact to their traditional ways of life. Uh, for example, you know, if your community is in the middle of a forest fire that's been burnt out, so to speak, it disrupts the pattern of animal behavior, it disrupts uh, the, the traditional medicines and territory that you've become accustomed to and that you know so well, and there's a huge devastating grief associated with that, which exacerbates the mental health um, conditions that obviously many First Nations people uh, live with right now. So this is, a, this is a costly problem. It's a significantly sorrowful time for First Nations communities. And there is an economic prosperity angle in that many communities rely on the forests for their livelihoods, whether it is through tourism or through uh, engagement with the forestry industry. Okay, I want to turn to housing now. On Monday, the NDP's Blake Desjardins called for immediate housing uh, support to affected First Nations and Métis settlements. What can you say about that part of your response? Well, housing um, has been a critical need in First Nations uh, even prior to this wildfire season, and the government of Canada has invested historic sums to try to begin to close the housing gap. Um, in, in total, at this point, uh, roughly $8 billion has been dedicated to uh, building housing on First Nations and with First Nations leadership. Um, we, as you know, have uh, money set aside in Budget 23 for urban, rural, and northern housing. That's Indigenous-focused and led. So that work is is ongoing. I can, I can tell you though in terms of the rebuild what our commitment has been is that we will replace with First Nations the housing that's been lost as a result of forest fires and my focus as a Minister of Indigenous Services will be to uh, first of all help communities assess what that gap is, determine the price tag that we'll need to come up with in terms of uh, off-cycle funding. Um, this is not budgeted amounts. This is the money that we will need to go and seek in between budget cycles to help communities begin that work. And third 
thirdly, I'll say that there'll be some staging challenges because, of course, we're not just talking about housing. We're talking about other critical infrastructure that could be damaged, whether it's power, uh, water delivery. Uh, it's hard to tell. And the communities affected will be doing that assessment with the support from the engineering team and the technical teams at Indigenous Services Canada. Okay, and I also want to ask you about firefighting capacity. There's been a lot of talk uh, as these fires have spread about the possibility of a national fire service. Does Canada have enough firefighters? The government does have agreements now to train hundreds of new Indigenous firefighters, a program uh, that your colleague, the Natural Resources Minister, says will incorporate Indigenous knowledge. So what can you tell us about the timeline for that plan and how is it going to differ from other firefighter training? Well, first of all, um, the national approach to fighting fires is one that is collaborative with First Nations and provinces and territories. And provinces and territories, as you know, have the emergency management teams, including wildfire fighter, uh, wild, wildfire firefighters um, and teams of uh, individuals that respond to fire season every single year. But what Minister Wilkinson's announcement acknowledges is that it is often in remote communities, First Nations firefighters that are on the front line, and we need more. And we actually need, as Minister Wilkinson pointed out, to tap into the expertise of Indigenous peoples in terms of protecting ourselves, our country, from the increasing threat of wildfires. Indigenous peoples who have lived amongst forests uh, for a very long time will tell you that there are better ways to prevent wildfires and then to address wildfires when they do arise. And so by ensuring that there's sufficient money to train Indigenous uh, wildfire fighters, firefighters, what we're doing is really getting at the, the nut of that, which is that um, for far too long, this country has ignored the wisdom of Indigenous peoples, and um, it's been a lost opportunity, quite frankly, and I'm looking forward to working more closely with First Nations Indigenous peoples on restoring the, um, the knowledge that uh, Indigenous peoples have always had about how to protect themselves and how to protect the forest, quite frankly. Okay, Patty Haidu, Canada's Minister of Indigenous Services. I want to thank you for your time on this tonight, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much for the time. The Bank of Canada is hiking its key interest rate to 4.75%. That's a quarter point rise and the first increase to the overnight rate since January. The bank says Canada's economy remains stronger than expected and excess demand is higher than anticipated. And that's led to more concern about inflation staying stuck above the Bank of Canada's 2% target. Today's rate hike also producing lots of political reaction, including at question period. Here's the domino effect. His spending causes deficits, which cause inflation, which cause interest rates to go up, which cause defaults. How do you reverse that? You stop the deficits, which stops the inflation, which stops the interest rates from going up, which stops the defaults. What part of that doesn't he understand? Here, 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 here. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, once again, never letting the facts get in the way of a good political argument is the Leader of the Opposition's modus operandi. He says if we were to raise childcare fees in Canada instead of cutting them in half, if we were uh, to not deliver dental care for young kids across this country, then suddenly inflation, which is impacting the world all over, would suddenly drop. Uh, that Canada uh, is so important in the world. Uh, 
that our lowest deficits in the GDP are contributing massively to this global inflation context. It is complete garbage from the leader of the opposition, Mr. Speaker. Well, let's take a deeper look at the Bank of Canada's decision with two economists. Armin Yelnizian is the Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers, and Randall Bartlett is Senior Director of Canadian Economics for Desjardins. Welcome to you both. Hi. Uh, Randall. Yeah, thank you for having us. Randall, let me start with you. Governor Tiff Macklem had signaled the bank was prepared to start raising rates again. There was speculation, though, whether the bank would do it today per, or perhaps wait until July to see some more economic data. What do you make of the bank's call to move ahead today with a hike? Yeah, it really was a nail biter of a call coming into this. We thought it was roughly even odds that the bank would uh, that the bank would hike today, and so it didn't come as uh, I think all that much of a surprise to uh, to financial markets and uh, and economists uh, that they did. And a big part of that was what the Bank of Canada calls an accumulation of evidence leading up to today's uh, interest rate hike, where we've seen that uh, inflation has been moving higher, that core inflation has been proving sticky, real GDP growth came in much stronger than the bank had anticipated in the first quarter, and really, uh, you know, the stack hand there would be a lot of strength going to the second quarter of this year. The labor market remains much stronger than the bank anticipated. So all of this accumulation of evidence suggested that, um, you know, the Bank of Canada could hike today and, uh, and ultimately did, and that uh, left the door open for another hike in uh, July as well. Armin, what's your take on the timing of this? We have uh, the Bank of Canada admitting demand is more persistent than anticipated. Randall just went over some of the uh, evidence that the bank is citing. What's your view? Well, I guess I'm not as like, oh, that was obvious as Randall, because you can take a look at exactly the same evidence and see conflicting counter narratives. For example, in very strong first quarter growth, the month of January was when it was the strongest. It's really fallen off a cliff since then. And we're seeing all sorts of evidence that savings rates are collapsing. Only 30% of variable rate mortgages have refinanced. We are looking at lots of slowdowns. And whereas wage growth has caught up to now headline inflation, it's still well below. Uh, real wages are still well below where they were before this round of inflation. So people's purchasing power has really been big. And we're seeing the biggest increases in inflation rates in the very thing that the Bank of Canada is in charge of, mortgage costs. So 28.5% higher cost this year than last, which is now cascading into the rental market. So, you know, you could have argued that even though Canada was one of the first countries, along with the UK, to start raising rates, and the first country to pause for as long as it did, that this is not the time to go forward. It's time to watch the d data actually gel in a particular direction. An increase from 4.3% to 4.4% inflation rate is a rounding error. It could be adjusted in a couple of months. And next week, both the ECB and the U.S. Federal Reserve will be uh, making a rate announcement, and it is widely expected they will raise rates. And if there was one reason to raise rates now, it is to close the gap that might be otherwise growing with the U.S., which might skew capital markets. Okay, Randall, I want to go back to the question of, of inflation that uh, Armin's talking about. The bank says inflation will get down uh, to 3% this summer, according to their estimate. But the bank also saying that concerns have increased about inflation getting stuck materially above the 2% target. I know that observers are always parsing what the bank says, reading the tea leaves of what kind of language they use. What's your sense of what the bank is saying today about inflation? 
Well, I think there's a big difference between what we're seeing in terms of the headline inflation in Canada and what we're seeing in terms of some of the uh, measures of underlying inflation that the Bank of Canada uses. Now, uh, to you know, to reiterate Armin's point, we had an increase last month of, uh, of inflation of 4.4% from 4.3%, which I agree is essentially a rounding error. And we think that inflation is going to, headline inflation will continue to track lower going forward and in line really with the Bank of Canada's expectations. But the concern of the Bank of Canada goes beyond just what the headline inflation number is. When we look at uh, some of the core inflation numbers that the Bank of Canada uses, whether that's uh, whether that's the trim uh, uh, measure that it uses, median, or whether it's the core services measure excluding shelter, so including excluding the um, the mortgage interest cost uh, category that uh, the mean was referring to, we see that those have remained very sticky in the range of about three and a half to four and a half percent, and that they've been moving sideways now for months. And so, really, the concern I think of the Bank of Canada is not so much what headline inflation is doing and what it's doing on a month-to-month -month basis and small changes uh, up or down. It's really what's happening to core inflation, the underlying inflation we're seeing in the economy, which again has been moving has been moving sideways now for months and really is showing very little sign of starting to track lower. And I think that's really where the Bank of Canada's emphasis has been, certainly in today's uh, press release, as well as in uh, communications uh, you know, over the last months, is that that's really where it needs to start seeing material movement going forward and where we haven't seen a lot of uh, momentum moving in the right direction. Right, and Armin, you, you mentioned mortgages, Randall just did as well. So Canadians are certainly looking at interest rate hikes through the prism of their cost of living, their mortgages, uh, affordability. Uh, should Canadians be confident that the bank's current policy is going to get things under control? They've talked about 3% uh, this summer, but again, there is that talk of getting stuck above that 2% target. Well, there's two parts of my answer to you. The first is that all the things that led to low prices and low um, inflation targets of 2% for decades, all the factors that led to that, China being the factory of the world, the low wage factory of the world, fairly steady and efficient global supply chains, no wars, no big wars that involved a lot of players, uh, and no extreme climate events. All of these things are now reversed right now. So we've got more headwinds on higher prices than we did for the last 30 years. But we are using the same playbook that we have always played. And it reminds me of that uh, old chestnut, you know, the beatings will continue until morale is improved. We are raising rates because that is what the Bank of Canada does. There are other tools in the tool bag. We have them in our own past in Canadian history of fighting inflation. But really what the world is doing in lockstep is doing what it has done since the 1980s. Inflation goes up and so do interest rates. You will stop spending. And so that's what will cool rates. But the irony here is that raising the rates to cool spending is raising the cost of the biggest line item in any household's budget, whether you're a renter or an owner, whether you have a mortgage or you pay rent, whether you're rich or poor, housing costs have gone up the most. So yeah, you can parse out shelter costs, but you take a look at every single item that is in the CPI basket and the fastest growing item in terms of cost is mortgage interest costs, and that is leaking into the rental housing stock market as people stop being landlords and they start turning to short-term rentals to get higher rates. So it, it's it's an 
terribly ineffective policy if you are trying to slow down price growth. Okay, we just have a quick moment left, so I want to ask you both. Uh, very quickly, uh, the bank could raise interest rates again next month, and certainly people are wondering if we are entering another period of multiple rate hikes. What are the two of you going to be looking for in the numbers over the next few weeks as we try and uh, figure out what the Bank of Canada might do next? Armin, let me start with you. Yeah, I think we're looking at what the uh, jobs report is going to say on Friday. We're going to look at what the next CPI print is going to say. But even more carefully, next week is when the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve in the United States makes their right announcements. And I think that's going to speak volumes as to where we go in this parade. And Randall. So I think the Bank of Canada is uh, really going to be focused on what we see in terms of uh, GDP going forward. I mean, we're expecting that it's going to be strong in April and uh, and in May. It's showing a lot of strength as well. That's a, that's really very much surprised us, and I think it surprised the Bank of Canada as well. So we're going to be looking to GDP. We're going to be looking to uh, core inflation. Uh, those measures that the Bank of Canada has really been uh, laser focused on recently in terms of deciding policy. And finally, obviously, there's a labor market report that's going to be coming out on Friday that Armin mentioned. We're going to be looking at uh, what we can what we're seeing in terms of wage growth and also in terms of employment gains and where the unemployment rate is going. Okay, we have to leave it there. Randall Bartlett and Armin Yalnesian, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Let's turn to foreign interference now and the work of the special rapporteur. David Johnston is starting his public hearings next month and says the voices of diaspora communities are a top priority. But there are concerns that people already feeling targeted or threatened will be hesitant to come forward. Johnston says he's willing to consider in-camera hearings to get the information he needs. Here's more of what he told MPs on this yesterday. What we hope to do in the balance of the five months is to put a real light on this issue of the threats that diaspora communities are under and develop much more effective ways of one, equipping ourselves with our intelligence agencies to deal with them more effectively than them, and secondly, acquainting Canadians to the fact that so many people in the diaspora communities are, are unwitting victims of something that lies far beyond them. Uh, with respect to would we expect members of the diaspora community to be able to appear before a public hearing in openness, I'm quite confident they will in many instances, and in instances where they do not want to be there, we would receive submissions. We've already received perhaps a half a dozen or so submissions from diaspora communities very painfully and eloquently setting out the burdens that they're bearing and crying out for help. In cases of people who feel they can't come and see in person, we would invite and encourage whatever information they can give us, in particular what steps we can take. Let's bring in Sherry Wong, Executive Director of Alliance Canada Hong Kong, a campaign for pro-democracy Hong Kongers in this country. Sherry, good to see you. Thanks for having me. So we heard David Johnston, the special rapporteur, say he's confident he can get useful information from diaspora groups, even if someone is feeling targeted, even if they're worried about backlash. He's talking about potential in-camera hearings to protect people. What's your reaction to what you heard yesterday? Um, I, I know that he also spoke about having, you know, submissions from diaspora members. While I understand the approach, I think it's different because there is still an electronic and a paper trail to these participations. And 
really when we talk about the diaspora safety isn't about just having an in-camera meeting. It's really about having a secured way for them to freely engage in what they want to talk about with the government. And participation is frankly meaningless unless we put the diaspora safety as the utmost priority. So are you getting the sense from people that you talk to? Is there a willingness? Is there a, a faith in this process that there are going to be safety measures and, and are people going to feel comfortable coming forward? A lot of my community members engage through anonymous means. They use aliases, they create multiple emails just to distance themselves from any type of dissident work. So from my perspective, I don't think there is going to be a very high um, uptake in diaspora who may help hold you know, sensitive views in Beijing's perspective. But I think really importantly, we have to understand that it is only those who have favorable views or those who are aligned with Beijing's interests can really safely exist in the public space. So that leaves diaspora members who have dissenting views more vulnerable to foreign interference and intimidation tactics. Now, I know you've gone before several parliamentary committees studying this, so have other organizations. Will David Johnston, as the special rapporteur, hear anything that hasn't already been put on the record? Do you think something useful is going to come from his hearings? Um, I think, you know, we've seen a lot of public hearing um, through parliamentary committees. We've also seen a lot of civil societies, such as Amnesty and the Citizen Lab, creating various reports on foreign interference. I don't question uh, the validity to understand more of foreign interference. I think that's really important. But I think it is even more important right now we take action and that we address the very concerns that diaspora don't feel safe here in Canada and how we can create a sustainable and safe space for them to continue to engage in our political processes. Right. And you've said before that uh, Canada can't wait for the public hearings to finish, can't wait for the rapporteur's final report. You want faster action. I know your group put out a detailed report last week on foreign interference with a number of recommendations. What's your top priority in the short term? I think Canada needs to create a communications and engagement strategy with diaspora communities. And this is not limited to ethnic Chinese diaspora, but with different diaspora communities who all face different forms of foreign interference. We need to be engaged and communicated at a cultural and linguistically sensitive level. That means we have to go beyond translation materials, but actually creating culturally and linguistically sensitive materials to outreach to diaspora members. I think that's our first step to really create a safe and inclusive space for the diaspora to truly engage in Canadian processes. Another aspect of your report dealt with a foreign agent registry. The government has held consultations and is signaling that a bill is coming. What do you think needs to be in that bill? A lot of things. I think one of the most important pieces is how do we capture the PRC's proxies? Um, they, Beijing often use proxies as a way to engage in foreign interference and influence activities, which allow them to fly under the radar. 
um, but it is frankly the proxies that have a lot of influence in mainstream society, and we need to be able to be able to capture those proxies. And on another level, we also need to have strong enforcement and investigative powers to this registry, so that those who are non-compliant will be investigated, and if appropriate, some kind of penalty will be placed on them, so that the registry isn't just. Uh, for transparency, but it is an enforceable measure that holds power over those who operate here in Canada. Okay, we just have a moment left. I want to close on this. In David Johnston's first report uh, from May 23rd, he said there's a risk of a racist backlash against diaspora communities unless it is well communicated that these communities are the victims of foreign interference and not its instruments. And I know this story, the foreign interference story in all its forms has really been on the front burner in Canadian politics for several months now. How have you seen it in, in your community? Is there a backlash that people are feeling right now? There is a long history of systemic and institutionalized violence towards Asians, towards Chinese people in Canada. It's not new. And a lot of our community members still remember you know, the violence they have felt, not only through the COVID pandemic, but the continued xenophobia that exists here today. So, yes, I, I echo the calls to ensure that the diaspora is not treated as the enemy, but I also don't think there is the necessarily cultural lens um, right now to offer a truly anti-racist approach when we do move forward with such legislation like a foreign influence transparency uh, registry. Okay, Sherry Wong, we have to leave it there. We'll certainly be following this story. I want to thank you for all your thoughts on this. Thanks for having me. And that is Primetime Politics for this Wednesday. I'm Andrew Thompson, and for all of us at CPAC, thanks for watching. L'Essentiel is up next. <laughs>